Hello, everyone. I hope that you're enjoying this Feast of Tabernacles 2007. Being a history buff, I've been fascinated by the accounts of our early settlers and what they endured. You probably are aware of the history of the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, which was one of the major events in the early history of the American colonies. The Pilgrims left Plymouth, England on September 16th, 1620, headed for Virginia. Now, as a result of stormy weather and navigational errors, they got off course and arrived at Cape Cod on November 21st, 1620. Eight and a half weeks in the North Atlantic in a small boat. Now, when they arrived, they scouted out the area and founded Plymouth on December 21st, 1620. There were 101 men, women, and children in this raw new land in the dead of winter. Their timing wasn't very good. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the Plymouth Plantation on the coast of Massachusetts, which is a recreation of what those early pilgrims went through when they landed in New England. And we saw there how they lived and how they prepared their food and what their homes were like and what it was like to live in that time and in that place. It was very difficult for them. There were a lot of hardships, a lot of deprivation, a lot of things they didn't have there that they had back in their homeland. Now, these people at that time, those pilgrims, did these things and endured these hardships for physical goals. They wanted land. They wanted freedom. And they came and went through all of that for that. Some of you, I'm sure, saw the movie of several years ago, which was filmed in North Carolina, uh, and The Last of the Mohicans. And in this movie, it showed how the settlers in uh, that part of our history uh, went through great hardship and isolation on the frontier. They went through the danger and, and were exposed to all of these hardships. Again, doing that for physical goals, for physical reasons. And then, of course, the Western migration began. And as the people in the United States began to move from the East Coast through the heartland after the Louisiana Purchase and on forward to the West, the Western migration, uh, which included my famous ancestor from long ago. And what did they go through and how many died an early death because of what they were trying to accomplish as physical human beings? It's a fascinating study to see what people will do when they focus on a goal, a physical goal or a spiritual goal. Now, the people that I've described here were strangers in a strange land, pilgrims far from their home. They were pioneers at that time. Now, what is a pioneer? Well, the skeptics will tell you that a pioneer is the guy with the arrow in his back. Well, uh, clearly, we want to look at a more positive definition. Webster says that a pioneer uh, means to open or prepare the way for others to follow. It goes on and says to originate or to take part in the development of. So that's the definition that we would like to consider when we think about pilgrim. Now, God's word has much to say about strangers and pilgrims. And as we keep this Feast of Tabernacles, let's look at these great examples and see how they apply to us 
as God's people, as his church. Now, this observance that we're keeping is referred to in a special way. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Psalm 42, we'll start in verse 1. It says, As the deer pants for the water brooks. Do you have this mental image of being thirsty? Panting, you see, for the water brooks? Christ said that happy are we if we hunger and thirst. And this is what the psalmist is talking about here. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, interesting, when should you appear before God? Well, we understand at the three seasons in the year. In the spring holy days, in early summer at Pentecost, and then, of course, in the autumn holy days. The three seasons described in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, which I'm sure you've looked at several times in this festival season. Now, going on, it says, My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? Verse 4, When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. So, going to God to worship, you see, with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. A pilgrim feast. And how did they do that? With joy and praise, it says. A pilgrim feast, meaning that they didn't stay in their home area. They went somewhere uh, on a pilgrimage, as it were, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And certainly that's what you're doing. And you're doing so with joy and praise as you come to services each day. Now, let's look at some biblical examples uh, that illustrate the points I want to make today. Now, seven generations after the flood, God found Abram, a man who would obey. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 12 and read about this man who set such a wonderful example for us. And it's recorded for us. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So here we see we have instruction from God to this man. Verse 2, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we see that God gave to Abram instruction and great promises. Promises that really, I'm sure, staggered Abram as he thought about that, and and he realized what God was saying to him, promising him. Now, look at verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Interesting. You notice, uh, this is remarkable. No protest. No negotiation. Uh, He didn't say, well, God, I'll have my people get with your people and we'll work out the details. No. Abram obeyed. It says, Abram departed. 
and Lot went with him. Notice, um, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So we see that, that, that he was not a young man, and uh, he was a man of great substance. I'm sure that his departure from that area created quite an uproar. Abram was a major employer. He had servants. He had flocks and herds, a man of great substance. And when he moved, I'm sure it created quite uh, an uproar. But he obeyed. He did as he was instructed. Drop down to verse 9 in this account. So Abram journeyed, going still toward the south. Now, as we read this, we find that it wasn't easy. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. It wasn't easy for him to follow God's instruction. And brethren, worthwhile things are seldom, if ever, easy. The important things are upstream. We cannot drift, as I'm sure you are aware. Now, let's go on to chapter 13 in Genesis. Let's go further. Genesis 13 and verse 6. And here we'll see that there was more difficulty. You know the details, so we'll just hit the highlights in the story. In Genesis 13, verse 6, it says, Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So there was difficulty and strife between the employees or the servants, you see, of Lot and Abram. And it was something that had to be dealt with. There was difficulty. And we know that uh, uh, Abram handled it in a godly way. Let's drop down to verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, God said to Abram, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So here we see God reaffirmed the promises that he had made earlier to Abram and gave him more details of what it would be like. Now, in Genesis 15, following the story, just hitting the highlight, Genesis 15, here we see that Abram, who was childless, was promised a son. Genesis 15, verse 3. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. So God promised now Abram, who was an old man, you see, that he would have a son. <clears throat> now look at verse 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And look at verse 6. I think this is remarkable. And he believed in the Lord. And he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Brethren, 
Abram dared to believe. God gave him great promises. It didn't seem logical. It didn't seem practical. It didn't seem possible. But Abram believed. He dared to believe. Do you dare to believe the wonderful promises that God has given to us as his people? Turn over to Genesis 21 as we follow the story along. Genesis 21 and verse 2. Genesis 21, verse 2. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Verse 3. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. So here we see that he... Uh, was so patient. Look at verse 5. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. He waited 25 years for God to keep his promise. Now, that's a long time for a man, a big part of one's life. And yet, it's not a long time to God. God's timetable, his uh, uh, scheme of things for time certainly is not uh, according to man's kind. So, it was a long time for man, but not for God. We see as we look at this story that Abraham waited. Now, turn over to John chapter 8. Here we see Jesus Christ talking about this man that we've been reading about. John chapter 8, verse 56. And we see that Jesus Christ described Abraham as a man of vision. John 8, verse 26. I have many things to say to you, I'm sorry, John 8, 56. I'm in the wrong verse. Here we go. John 56, John 8, 56. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So Jesus said that Abraham actually could understand and foresaw what was going to happen. He was a man of vision and we know that he was patient and he waited. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, where the heroes of the faith are listed in this faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He acted on faith. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is is God. Now, Abraham had that vision, and he waited, and he could see what God had promised him. Now, uh, along the way, others caught the vision because Abraham had the vision. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she had judged him faithful who had promised. So Sarah, who doubted in the beginning, began to believe. Going on. We see verse 12. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the, in the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand is by the seashore. 
So we see that this promise was carried out. A great multitude was born. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. They came to understand. I'm sure by being taught by Abraham and the traditions and instruction that they received, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Let's go on in the account in Hebrews 11, in verse 14. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had been called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return But now, verse 16, they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is a planner. God has prepared his city. And we all look forward to that time. Now, uh, John uh, talked about this. We'll come back to uh, Hebrews, but turn over to John 14. John 14, the city prepared. Jesus Christ talked about that. John 14, verse 1. Jesus Christ speaking here in this passage, John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. They had a lot of things that could have troubled them. Uh, persecution, unsettled times, things that we face today. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions or offices. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare, prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Here we see Jesus Christ talking about a place prepared. And the, the passage in Hebrews talks about that as well. Turn back now to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. We'll pick up the story then in verse 20 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. We read about these successive generations from Abraham, and they looked to the promises. They understood that God was working out a plan, and they had a part in that. So it's very inspiring, I think, to look at these examples. And here in Hebrews, we find these uh, wonderful examples listed. Let's look at the example of Moses right here in Hebrews 11. Let's look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. You know the story back in Exodus and we study that in the spring holy days. We see that his parents were courageous and didn't follow the Pharaoh's orders to kill the children. They were courageous. 
And brethren, courage is required to serve God. God wants His people to be courageous. It's a theme that we see throughout the Scriptures. And Moses' parents were that way, and Moses was spared. Verse 24, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You can meditate on that and realize what he gave up in the way of power and prestige and influence in the greatest nation on earth at that time. Choosing, verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So we see that he certainly was willing to do that. Now we know that he endured 40 years caring for his father-in-law's flocks. Now, there must have been times during that 40 years, a long time for a human being, there must have been times when, when Pharaoh, I mean, when, I'm sorry, Moses thought about being back in Pharaoh's courts and the luxury and the life that he could have been living there. And yet here he was following his father-in-law's sheep. Forty years more in the wilderness. Forty years. Again, a long time. In human experience. Why did Moses do that? Why was he willing to pay the price? How could he do that? Look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. Moses was able to look for the reward. And here he is listed among the faithful. And what a great example He is to us. We know that being faithful is required and being faithful is pleasing to God. And we see how he used this faithful man, Moses. Now, let's take a brief look at David and his difficulties. You know the story so well. God rejected Saul and had David anointed king. Now, this didn't sit well with the Saul regime. Obviously, Saul, relished being king, did not want to give it up. And yet he knew eventually what would happen. Didn't go well, and he was after David. Let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him. Verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over him. And there were about 400 men with him. So here we see that David is on the run. David is on the run. And he's holed up in a cave. And we see that a ragtag uh, army assembles around him. Here's the man now that God has anointed. He's going to be king, and yet we see that he has this trial period where he is a fugitive. He's on the lamb. And others who have great problems uh, assemble around him. And we see that he goes through this for quite a period of time. Let's look at 1 Samuel 23. I'll try to find the right verse this time. Verse 23, verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 13. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keala and went wherever they could. 
Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keala, so he halted the expedition. We see that David and his men have to flee for their lives. Verse 14, And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day. So it was a manhunt. We have the armies of the king looking for David. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. So here we see again the man who is supposed to be king um, uh, fleeing constantly, day by day, in danger from the persecution of uh, Saul. Now, he probably had this in mind when he wrote Psalm 39. Please turn over to Psalm 39. Psalm 39, a psalm of David, where he refers to a time when he was a stranger. 39, Psalm 39, verse 12, says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. I'm sure that David often cried when he was a fugitive. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. So David experienced that and could speak from experience about being a stranger and a sojourner under those circumstances. Now let's fast forward to the end of David's life. Turn over to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 29. And we come to David's final prayer that is recorded for us. Very inspiring. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. David's final prayer. Verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Drop down to verse 13. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Verse 15, he says, For we are aliens or uh, strangers and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. So as we read David's final prayer, we see that he understood that this physical life is a journey. That while we are here in this physical life, we are strangers and pilgrims, as were our fathers. Very, uh, I think, revealing to see that this man that God used so well, this man after God's own heart, was one who understood this fact. Now, let's, let's look at some New Testament examples. Let's look at some New Testament examples. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8. And here we see that Jesus Christ was itinerant when he was here. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Jesus said, 
Actually, let's look at verse 19. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will go, I will follow you wherever you go. And some are enthusiastic in that way and say, Yes, I'll do this. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, he did not come to establish his kingdom at that time. He, he did not have houses and lands and all of that. He came to do the work that he was doing. And he was itinerant, meaning he traveled about at that time. And certainly in the New Testament, we see that Paul, what a great example he was. Now, Paul was a Pharisee, a part of the establishment. He had power. He had uh, clout, as we might say. And he was a part of the establishment that was persecuting Christians. He was set on destroying the way, as it was referred to. Let's read the account in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, a passage of Scripture that I'm sure you're very familiar with. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Then Saul, the one who became Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, this way of life that we live today, they were living it that way at that time as well, who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound in chains, you see, in fetters to Jerusalem. So that was his goal. That was his mission, was to destroy the way of life uh, of Christians. Now, Jesus Christ had other ideas for this man. Look at verse 3. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So here we see that Saul began his sojourn, his pilgrimage as a Christian, his journey toward the kingdom. Drop down to verse 15. But the Lord said to him, this person that was delivering the message to Paul, the one who became Paul. Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul began as one who persecuted Christians, and now he's going to spread the message, and it's going to bring him great persecution. And these words of Jesus Christ came to be, as we see in 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul gives an account of his life. What an incredible story. What an incredible example we have. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse... Uh, 18, we pick up the story. Paul's saying here, Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. Paul now is, is giving the facts. He's giving uh, the reasons that people can have confidence in him. In verse 21, he says, To our shame, we'll get in the middle of the verse. He says, I speak foolishly. He says, he, he felt foolish talking about himself in that way. I am bold also. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. They were making a big deal about being Hebrews. And he said, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I, Paul said. Are they the seed of Abraham? 
So am I, he said. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Again, he didn't want to, to, to boast, and yet he had to make his defense. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. When Paul took his shirt off, you could see the scars. He bore the marks in his body of the persecution that he endured. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Amazing. Three times he survived being shipwrecked. In modern times, if Paul were here, you would not want to get on an airplane with Paul. Because he obviously went through a great deal. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys, often, he was always traveling on his missionary journeys, as they're called. In perils, in waters, an awful lot can happen on the high seas in the small craft that they had at that time. In perils of robbers, on the highways that the Roman Empire built through that part of the world, there were uh, people who worked those roads as, as robbers and highwaymen. There was danger out there. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. You know, today, our cities many times are not safe. It was similar in Paul's time. He had perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil. He worked hard. He toiled. He supported himself, as you know. In sleeplessness often. In hunger and thirst. In fastings often. In cold and nakedness. Often Paul didn't have the basics of food and clothing and shelter. He often was deprived of those things. And look at verse 28. Besides the other things, he said... Now, it's one of those classic uh, things. Uh, what other things? I'm sure we'll be eager to find out in the kingdom what other things uh, Paul went through at that time. It's a real understatement, I'm sure. He said, besides the other things, what was on his mind? Considering all that he went through, what was, what was the driving force in Paul's life? What was on his mind? He said, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. What was on his mind? The work. The, the kingdom of God. The, the, the church. His, the way of life to which God had called him was on his mind. That's what drove him. Now, after going through all of those things over a long period of years, involving imprisonment and beatings and persecution, how did he sum it up? How did Paul sum up his life? What, what was his goal? Turn over to Second Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. Verse 6. Paul now describing his own life. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Using this analogy of the, the, uh, the offerings that were given. And the time of my departure is at hand. He knew that he did not have long to live. Paul says, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He could say that because it was true. It wasn't bragging. 
wasn't boastful. He had kept the faith. Finally, Paul said, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What was his goal? What was his reward? The kingdom. All of his service, all of the things that he had done was to work toward that kingdom. Drop down to verse 18. 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Clearly, brethren, the time that we are keeping in this Feast of Tabernacles pictures that kingdom. This Feast of Ingathering that we're observing at this time pictures the time that Paul was working toward. It pictures your goal. It pictures what you are, are holding out for, and that is the hope that we as God's people have. As we think about this, brethren, how about us? What is our status at this time? Let's look at Philippians. Turn back to Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, here, written by Paul, giving us instruction that's certainly for us today. Philippians 3, verse 17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example. Paul said, Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul set the pattern. It's recorded for us in his letters and in the story of his life. We have the pattern of our other teachers. We have the pattern given in the church as to how we should live and what we should be doing. We have instruction for, from God. So we clearly know the, the pattern of the worship that we should have. Drop down to verse 20. Paul said, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, our citizenship is in the kingdom to come. What an important concept for us to grasp, especially in, as persecution comes. And often people will criticize us for not being involved in the political system of this world. And here's the answer. Our citizenship uh, is in the kingdom to come. And that's where we put our effort and our time. And we look forward to that eagerly, just as the examples I've been giving you in the sermon thus far. Turn over to Romans chapter 8 as we talk about our status. Where, where do we fit into this plan? Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 16. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Sometimes we might tend to overlook that or maybe trivialize that, but it's very important. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we I may also be glorified. Heirs. Rather, what an incredible thing to be an heir, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It means we're going to receive something. 
You know that if you're going to get an inheritance, you're going to receive something. And we are going to receive something. Now, what are we going to receive? You know the answer, but let's look. Turn back to James. James chapter 2. The Lord's brother. James chapter 2, right after the book of Hebrews. James chapter 2, verse 5. What an incredible concept that we find here. James 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He promised to those who love Him? And brethren, by coming to this feast, you demonstrate that you love God by supporting Him. Uh, through the work, by praying for the work, by living the life that you live, by trying to put these things into practice, by seeking the kingdom and God's righteousness, you demonstrate that you love Him. And He says that, that this, the, the kingdom is yours if you love it. So we see that. It's very inspiring. I hope that you're inspired by it, as we should be. Now, turn back to First Peter as we think about this important subject. First Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Brethren, you have that living hope. We are the living church of God for a reason. God is alive and His church is alive and He has these promises for us. Has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Everything that we know of in our human experience will fade. It will wear out. It will become obsolete. The promises of God the kingdom that He has promised us, the inheritance that we have, does not fade away. There are old gospel songs that have that as a line. But it certainly is true. God's promises do not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. I hope that inspires you, brethren, especially as we keep this Feast of Tabernacles, that you have an inheritance that does not fade away. Again, looking at lots of scriptures, but they tell the story. Please turn back to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. Christ said, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, He will sit on the throne of His glory. A time we all look forward to. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has had this plan in mind from the beginning, from the foundation of the world. Christ described it. It was His message about the kingdom. It's really very important that we grasp that, and especially focus on it at this time of year during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, brethren, as sojourners and pilgrims, 
There are things that we must do. Salvation, of course, is a gift from God. We can't earn it. But there are things that we, as God's people, must do. Let's look at a few of those things. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, verse 11. The Apostle Peter writing here, written to those people back then and preserved for us, and very relevant and very meaningful for us today. First Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, he says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He said, abstain, obviously meaning that we should leave behind those fleshly lusts that war against the soul. We do have a spiritual battle that we fight every day, and it is against human nature, the downward pulls of the flesh, the things in this society that would draw us away from God and His way of life. In verse 12, it says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, and we should live. Honorable lives, being good citizens, doing the things that we should be doing to be a good example. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. There comes a time, there is coming a time, when these people who may criticize and persecute you today will recognize what you are doing and praise you for it when in the day of visitation. And they will glorify God that you had the courage and the character to do it at that time. We are to abstain from this world and its fleshly lust. Now, as we read about this, turn back to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. Verse 5, Philippians 4, verse 5. This is a scripture that you probably have memorized. Philippians 4, verse 5. It says, let your gentleness, and my margin says your moderation, let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So, brethren, while we are here at this feast, our conduct at the feast should glorify God in the places we go, in the things we do in our conversation, in our family life, uh, where we're staying, as we move in this community and do the things that we're doing, our conduct should glorify God, especially at the feast. Now, we have, we have help, and we are part of the preparation for what is coming, this wonderful kingdom that's described. Let's, let's take a look at that. Please turn back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Ephesians 2, verse 18. For through Him we we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners or pilgrims, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Brethren, do you grasp that? Members of the household of God. What a wonderful thing. What a beautiful expression. 
to be a part of the household of God, even now as a part of the church, and certainly looking forward to it in the kingdom, which we picture by the observance of this festival. Members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, why do we study this word? Why do we read about the apostles and the prophets? Because that's what we base our whole uh, activity on. That's what we do. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone being the foundation upon which everything rests and is built. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Do we grasp that, brethren, that we are a part of something great? We are a part of what is being built now that will go into this coming kingdom of God. A part of the household, a part of the building, a part of the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I hope that inspires you. For it is our goal. It's, it's why we do the things that we do. It's very important. And we are privileged to have a part in preparing for the kingdom to come. Now, as we think about this, brethren, what will it be like, this inheritance that we're talking about? What, what, will, what will it be like? As, as physical being, human beings, it is hard for us to understand. Maybe impossible for us to really comprehend fully. But we do have a glimpse of what it will be like in the kingdom. Let's turn back to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. Beautiful words in Isaiah. I'm sure they were very beautiful in the original, and yet they translate into our language so beautifully. Isaiah 35. It's talking about the time that we look forward to, the time pictured by this festival. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And vast areas of this earth today are wasteland because of the abuse that it has been put to by mankind. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Those desert places that are so uh, desolate will become like a garden. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. We look at Lebanon today and we don't see much glory. And yet, certainly, it is a beautiful area and was and will be again. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. That's why we like to focus on the excellent things and lift the standards. Why? Because our God is a God of excellence. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. What a wonderful time that will be when we have the power to, to strengthen those who are feeble and to raise up those who are weak. Say to those who are fearful hearted, a great deal of fear in the world today. People go to the market in Israel and they may be blown up. In various parts of the world today, terrorism is striking fear into the hearts of people on subways and public transportation and public areas. And yet we see that there's coming a time when there will be no fear. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God 
will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And we know, brethren, that only God can save us. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Praise God. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the dumb, that is those that can't speak, will sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool. And the thirsty land springs of water. Isn't it amazing how uh, an abundance of pure water can transform the desert into something beautiful? In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. The wetlands, you see, for uh, the, the good that it brings. Verse 8, Isaiah 35, verse 8, A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there. You see, no wild beast to harm. Nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. Those who have been set apart, you see. Those who have been saved. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. Not a temporary thing, but everlasting joy. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I have this mental image of just being swept away and, and, a, and happiness and the things described here um, of everlasting joy and so on just being installed at that time. It certainly is a, a very important time. Turn back to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, verse 15. When will this happen? When will these things come to pass, brethren? Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom that we have been talking about, the kingdom that we look forward to in in so many, many ways. In Revelation 19, Verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened and a white horse, <clears throat> and uh, he who sat on him was faithful and true, and righteousness he judges and makes war. We go on and read about his great uh, power. <clears throat> In verse 6 of Revelation 19, it says, And behold, I heard it was, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters. And as the sound of many thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's what we look forward to. It's certainly what we want to see happen. And then very quickly, Revelation 21 talks about that time and how it will be. We looked at it in Isaiah. We'll take a brief look here in Revelation 21, verse 3. It talks about, um, in Revelation 3, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. We look forward to that. And they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. Look at verse 4. Revelation 21, 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
We have a great deal of weeping and sadness in the world today. That's going to be swept away. Every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Nor sorrow. Nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things. All the things that we're familiar with. All the things that the patriarchs and others went through, you see, in this physical life. The former things have passed away. And then he said... Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So, certainly, brethren, as we think about these things, we can look forward to that time. I want to read to you the words of a song. I'll spare you. I won't sing it. But the words of a song written by Mark Graham that I think illustrates the point beautifully. It's entitled, Strangers Here Below. Like birds of the air and like fish of the sea, who knows where tomorrow may find us to be. Wherever we wander, wherever we roam, we look to the kingdom to come as our home. Some men have countries and some men have kings. We have a hope that tomorrow will bring. The fox has his hole and the bird has its tree. We have our hope in the kingdom to be. We are strangers in a strange land. We are pilgrims far from our home. We are wanderers wherever we go. Strangers here below. Abraham wandered and Isaac again. Jacob and Joseph were sojourning men. Moses left everything he'd ever known. David had only a cave for his home. Paul was in prison and Peter in chains. John died in exile. The others were slain. They longed for a home, for a city to be. They lived in the promise and died in the dream. They were strangers in a strange land. They were pilgrims far from their home. They were wanderers wherever they'd go. Strangers here below. Now the time is at hand for the king to appear. The earth it will tremble, the nations will fear. I hardly know whether to wish for that day when the moon turns to blood and the sun fades away. When he returns, he will bring back the light, the kingdom of justice, of truth, and of right. The lame man will leap and the blind man will see when the world has its first taste of true liberty. Then the stranger will ramble no more and the pilgrim will finally be home and the wanderer will at last rest his head All the strangers here below, strangers here below. Brethren, as we observe this Feast of Tabernacles in this special place, as we focus on God's soon coming kingdom, in all that we say, in all that we do, let's remember, we are strangers here below. 